again that we see Christ in His Word. And we are in John chapter 14, first couple of verses. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. I'm going to go ahead and read the first three verses. We'll start in verse 1. Hear then the Word of God. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you, were it not so, would I have told you that I go and to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you also may be. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do long for you to show yourself to us, that you would speak your word into our heart and into our lives with power, that you would shape our minds, that you would shape our hearts, that you would change and transform our lives into your own, that we might be like you. Fill us with your spirit this morning and let us see. Give us ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has just told his disciples that he is leaving and that where he's going, that they will not be able to follow him. They're a little bit confused. They're a little bit upset. This is bad news for them. They don't particularly like it. And so he encourages them and he tells them not to let their hearts be troubled and he encourages their faith and he tells them to lift up your eyes, believe in God, believe in me. And in verse 2, he goes on to casually touch on one of the most important truths of the Christian faith, which is the reality of heaven. Next to the doctrine of the existence of God, which he touched in verse 1, where he urges them to believe in God, next to the doctrine of God itself, the doctrine of heaven is one of the most foundational doctrines for the Christian worldview. Is there a heaven? It's not an abstract and theological and lofty idea. It is foundational. It's a question about the very nature of reality itself. The nature of reality. What exists? C.S. Lewis said it this way. It's there in your bulletin under the first point. C.S. Lewis said, It is more important that heaven should exist than that any of us should reach it. It's more important that heaven should exist than that any of us should reach it. Why is that? Because the existence of heaven speaks to the whole nature of reality itself. It speaks to the whole nature of the way things are. The universe in which we exist. To say that there is a heaven literally blows the lid off the universe. It expands our understanding of reality. And it literally changes everything. Because you and I know there are really two different views of the nature of reality that will utterly shape the way we think about things and, the, and therefore the way that we are, the way that we live, who we are and what we do, what we give our lives to. One believes that there is a life after death and one believes that there is not. Right? One believes that this is all there is. And one that believes that there is a heaven. And it changes everything. 
See, the atheists believe the universe has a lid. Atheists believe that we live in a closed system. A self-contained, eternal system. And that there is no God, and that He doesn't work in the world. Nothing breaks into that system. The system just goes on. There was a big bang, and the universe is expanding outward. That, that matter and energy are eternal. That they're what is eternal. There's not a personality that's eternal. We live in an, in an eternal environment. The world, the Big Bang blows it out at some point. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It will reach a point of expansion, and it will begin to contract until it reaches a point of, of, of critical mass, and it will explode again. And in this eternal contracting of things, in time and chance, sometimes life will exist. The human race, then, is a cosmic accident. accident. We, are, we are bags of skin filled with bones and chemicals. We came from nowhere, and we're really not going anywhere. And when you die, it is extinction. As the universe will become extinct and only explode again, and maybe there will be some form of life, maybe not. This entirely atheistic and materialistic view of the universe, there's no moral or spiritual grounding. Can you see that? If that's what the universe is, and if that's what we are, cosmic accidents, there is no moral grounding. We came from nowhere without purpose. We're a freak accident of nature. There's no moral grounding. Kreef says it this way. It's in your bulletin. If all of life's road lead to the same place, i.e. extinction, it makes no ultimate difference which road you choose. Right? It doesn't matter whether you choose the life of a criminal. It doesn't matter whether you choose the life of a, of a murderer or an, uh, uh, you know, a, a care worker, you know, a, someone who serves and gives. It doesn't matter whether you're an engineer. It doesn't matter where you give your life. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what moral road you take. It doesn't matter what choices you make. Because in other words, if all roads lead nowhere, then it's whatever. Right? If that's the world we live in, whatever is the common phrase. Whatever. What does it mean? It doesn't matter. I don't care. Whatever. That's a universe with no God. Who cares? There's no right and wrong. I can come from anywhere, and I'll be extinct before long, and so will you. And I'll do whatever I want as long as I don't get caught. At the center of this worldview, people do not reap what they sow. <laughs> At the center of this universe, there is no accountability. At the center of this universe, there is no right and wrong. There's no heaven and hell. There's no God. The universe is cold and empty and silent and meaningless. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we are extinct. Whatever. But Jesus casually affirms one of the most foundational lid-blowing realities that we could possibly encounter, doesn't he? He casually affirms that a reality that is bigger than our material universe. He casually tells us that God exists and you should believe in Him and you should put your hope and your direction to be where He is 
that he has, in a sense, a house, a place where he lived, a place where he abides. Jesus opens a window through the darkness of, of meaninglessness and nowhereness. And he says, little children, the uncreated God has a home. He is my father. The father exists as truly as you and I exist. And where he lived, Jesus says, there are many rooms. In other words, he the apartments or living space. He says, where, where my father is, there's a lot of living space. Right? There's room, for, room enough for all of those whom the father would, would redeem as his own children and bring home. Jesus paints us a picture of the father opening his home. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. Not only that he says there is a heaven and that he, that he opens and blows the lid off the universe. There's a spiritual reality beyond your material senses that God exists. And, and there is this spiritual reality. But then as he, he's, he paints this picture of the most comfortable place that you and I long to be. I don't know about you and I. I can't wait. Every time I leave in the morning, a lot of my days, I can't wait to get back home. Right? There is no place like home. Home, sweet home. The haven of peace, this place of warmth and comfort. And Jesus paints this picture of the Father opening His home to us. This picture expanding His family, very much like we have done this morning, where, where He would redeem us and adopt us as His children and open His home to us and bring us home. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 8, it's there in your bulletin, the second point. Paul writes and he says, Church, lovers of Jesus, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I would rather go home. The older you get, the more you feel that way. At least for me. The older I've gotten, when I was younger, I couldn't imagine that thought. Well, the older I get, the more tired you get, the more you start thinking a new body would be a great idea. You know, there are a lot of things about it, but the older you get, this idea that, it, that to be away from the body is to go home. That's a comforting thought. That's a longing. Paul wrestled with that thought. He said, I, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, and I'm having trouble choosing between the two. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble choosing between being with you where I would be of some help. I want to stay with my family where I would be some help, but I'm torn. Paul says I'm literally torn because to be away from the body is to be at home. This world is not my home. What a marvelous and wonderful thing that Jesus and Paul refer to death in this way. And more marvelous still that it's just not some home somewhere. He doesn't say, you know, he's created a heaven for us somewhere, a place for you after somewhere. He says, actually, I'm going I'm to take, take you home with me. For those who are in Christ, this world is not our home. God has made us for himself. He has made us to be with him. And Jesus says, if it wasn't so, I would have told you. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. See, Jesus made a career of correcting pharisaical mistakes and errors, didn't he? I mean, he, he did a lot of that confronting error and misconception in the, in the ways of thinking and the understanding of Scripture of the Pharisees and the other teachers and rulers of the day. Jesus made a career of it. And he says, when it comes to this thing of heaven, he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. 
And so we get from Jesus this absolute certainty about the nature of reality. There is a heaven. God is. And he invites you home with himself. And he speaks of several things when he says this in verses 2 and 3, doesn't he? He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to be with me where I am. He's going to make preparations. He's going to come back. And he says, and we will be with him. What preparations is Jesus going to make? Well, there are any number of things I imagine as he goes to heaven and makes preparation. But I think as he sits here on the eve of his crucifixion, quite literally, that a lot of the preparations he is going to make, he's going to make on the cross and in the grave and through his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He says, I go to make preparations for my people to join me. There's work that has to be done before you can join me where I am. The work of the cross where he pays the penalty for our sin. Where we're told he bore our sin in his own body on the cross. That we would be set free from sin. That we would be reconciled to the Father. Isn't it amazing how much the New Testament paints what Jesus has done for us with so many different pictures, right? It's the setting us free from slavery. It's breaking the bonds. It's, it's confronting evil and tearing down its works. It's, it's reconciliation with the Father. Before we can go home, this reconciliation must take place. He wins for us the right to Go to the Father's house. He wins for us and obtains for us access and acceptance with the Father by dealing with our sin. God says, your sin has put a a barrier, a wall, a veil between you and and me so that I cannot be in relationship with you. And so Jesus, in his own body, bears our sin to remove the barrier and bring reconciliation with God that we can enter his presence without fear. It's there in Roman, uh, Hebrews 10 in your bulletin under the second point. Hebrews, the writer says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Okay, in, the, in the picture of the holy places is the temple, the innermost sanctum of the temple. But the temple is often spoken of as God's house, which is really on earth simply a picture, simply, simply a, 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 an idea to give us what, what the actual presence of God is like. And so the temple, the temple in heaven is where God is. It's the holy place. And Jesus, he says, we have confidence to enter that place, the presence of God. Why? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and the living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. That is through our sin and through death. He has opened a way through the curtain. That is, through his own flesh, what he did on the cross. He conquers sin and death. And he makes a way into the holy place. The presence of God. So we can go home with Him. Reconciled. At peace. He doesn't just make a living way. He becomes a new and living way. And that's what He's going to say in verse 6. And we'll get there here in the next few weeks. Right in verse 6 He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Me. Right? He doesn't just make a way. He becomes the way. To trust and believe in God, believe also in me. Because I will get you to the Father, which is what he says next, isn't he? He says, I'll, I'll come back. I'll come back and get you and take you to be with me. 
Right? See, the disciples, when they hear he's going away and they're really not sure where he's going, they get a little confused and they get a little bit concerned and they want to know where you're going and how are we going to get there? How are we going to make it to where you are? And Jesus says, I've made it my business to get you there. I've made it my business. I'm going to personally come back and take you to be with me. You don't need to know the way. You need to know me. I'm the way. And if you know me, then you will, you will know the way. You're all right. You're, you're, he's going to take us there himself. And he says, in the end, this is the goal. The, the height of it all. We will be with him. Right? He says, I will take you to myself. And where I am, you will also be. This is the very central reality of heaven. This is what makes heaven heaven. Jesus Christ is there. Right? It's the holy place because who dwells there? It's the central reality of heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, there in your bulletin under the second point, Paul writes, and here he's in a passage where he's describing his second coming, where he comes to gather his own to be with him. And Paul says, so we will always be with the Lord. And so encourage one another with these words. We will always be with Him. That is our hope. This world is not our our home. And this is not our hope. He says, but the day is coming when Jesus will come back and take you to be with Him. And so we will always be with the Lord. Revelation 19, it's there right under that in your bulletin. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Who is the bride that's made ready in Revelation? Well, if you love Christ, you're the bride, male or female. The whole church is, in that sense, female. The church, she is the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. And when he says, I will come and take you to be with me where I am, it's a lot like a husband taking his bride to, to come and live with him in his house. And so... You will always be with me. We don't need to know anything else about heaven. There's a lot we want to know. And there's more he's told us. But we don't need to know anything else about heaven. It's enough to know that we are forever with Christ. And he will take us. He will come and take us to be with him. So let me just talk very briefly then about a few highlights, ways that the promise of heaven blows the lid off of our universe. Because we must not lose sight of the bigger picture. If these things are true, if what Jesus casually promises to his followers, casually promises to his disciples, those who believe in God and believe also in him, who need not be troubled, because his father is a house with, many, with lots of room for you, and I'm going to take you to be with me there. And if, if these things are true, reality is bigger than we sometimes think it is. And there, there are several ways. Let me just touch on a few of them. The first one is this, and I would say it with all gravity. This is not something that Christians say glibly. Heaven is not promised to everyone. He's speaking to his disciples here. But... Jesus tells us very clearly, it is not promised to everyone. 
You know, we live in a culture right now. There's a lot. There's a lot of what we call culture wars. A lot of discussion going on. It's in the newspaper. It's on the news. And a lot of people in the whole discussion, their claim is simply this is their argument. Jesus is loving. Therefore, bam, this is automatically true. Which is a very irresponsible argument. Unless what you are pointing to, Jesus is loving, therefore B, if B is also in the Scripture, okay. But if B is something that contradicts all the rest of Scripture, then you've gone astray. Simply taking the argument, Jesus is loving and saying, therefore, and ignoring everything else Jesus says is a very dangerous and irresponsible thing to do. And in this case, this is the way the world would do it. Jesus is loving, and there is a heaven. You would never send anyone to hell. Jesus in his love tells us that reality is bigger still. Jesus in his love tells us of the existence not only of heaven, that heaven is not the full picture. The full picture that Jesus gives includes hell. There under the last point, Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, you should tear it out and throw it away. Why take such radical measures? Because it would be better for you to go with one eye into heaven than to go with both eyes into hell. And then he makes, he repeats the argument with your right hand, and he repeats the argument with your foot. If any part of you is causing you to sin, he says you should radically deal with that sin. In other words, he connects the existence of hell with our moral lives in this world. He teaches the reality of hell and he says it should radically change our moral behavior. That we should, that the existence, when when the lid is blown off the universe and these things exist, it should change, radically change and shape our moral behavior. Every human being, what Jesus is saying when he says that, every human being will reap what they sow in a judgment before a holy God. All roads do not lead to the same place, Jesus says. You know, it is, for people who point and say, well, Jesus is love and he would never do that, or Jesus is love and he would never say that. It is Jesus in his love who warns us about the reality, a reality which we will all face. And we have, the doctrine of hell, as we, as Christians have shaped it, here's the reason, I, it's not, I don't particularly like the doctrine of hell. It's not something that I would, you know, if I'm writing my theology and I wanted a really big church, I could triple the size of our church if I started saying different things, right? You can, you can if you tell the world what it wants to hear, if you, will, if you will scratch itching ears and tell them what they want to hear, you could grow very quickly into something else. But what shapes our doctrine of hell more than anything else are the words of Jesus Christ. You could read your New Testament and you will find no one speaks more about hell than Jesus. We get most of our doctrine, most of our understanding, most of the different metaphors and pictures that are used to describe its hellishness than Jesus Christ. How can you say I am a follower of Jesus and then utterly reject one of his most prominent doctrines that he taught? And so we believe, we teach, I stand and say this morning because I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And so Matthew 25, there in your bulletin, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where 
Jesus is talking about that day that we'll stand before the Father and he will say to two different groups and he'll say to those who are on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father as he spoke to his disciples. Come to my Father's house. I will take you there. Inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Another passage he adds where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth into the outer darkness with humility and sobriety. I would tell you the scripture, Jesus says you are a spiritual and a moral being. You are a spiritual and a moral being. And you live in God's universe. One day you will stand before Him. Second thing as the lid gets blown off is not only is heaven not promised to everyone, but Therefore, if all roads do not lead to the same place, then the road that you choose is infinitely important. Jesus at one point says, wide is the road and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And then he says, narrow is the road and hard is the way that leads to life, to my Father's house. Do you see? If life does not extend beyond this universe, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what morals you have or do not have. Because there will be no accountability. But if life does extend beyond the borders of the material universe, it changes literally everything. If we are going to stand before God, if we are going to be tried in the courts of divine justice, the lid is blown off. There's an old saying that says, you know, that he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You know, I think the opposite is absolutely true. Unless you are heavenly minded, unless you believe there's a heaven or a hell, then earthly speaking, whatever. (laughs) The truth is, until you are ready to die, you are not ready to live. To truly live, not only to live right, to live in line with the moral fabric of the universe, but to live with no fear. To live without regret, to know that I have a home, an eternal home, and all those longings within me for life and for meaning and for truth and for justice and for love and for security and for all of those things have an answer. The universe is not cold and silent and empty, but there is, in fact, a God in heaven who has loved us enough to make a way, and that reaches down Kreeft says there in your bulletin, heaven is not an escape from living here and now. It's precisely how to live here and now. It shapes everything. And so finally, when the lid comes off the universe, Christ becomes precious to the believing soul. Right? Do we see that? If all these things are true, Jesus makes a little more sense. What's he doing here? What's he, what's he doing? What's he accomplishing? Why does he keep asking for us to believe in him and these kind of things? What's, what's it all about? You know, before I was a believer, I had no idea. I would go to an Easter service, because that's when we went, Easter and Christmas, and I would have no idea what was going on. Why would Jesus die on the cross? And, and then he ra- rose from the dead. These things are really interesting and really, in some ways, impressive. But the whole point is this. You cannot earn your way to the Father's house. To live a life that is pleasing to the Father, which is the goal of life if if He exists, is something that we fail to do every day. And so we need a Savior. 
We need someone who will reconcile us to the Father, who will do something about that burden of sin that stands between, that He would bear it in His own body upon the cross, that He might destroy the power of sin and reconcile us to Father and open the way. Christ becomes precious. You You don't need a Savior until you are lost. But when you have a Savior through the cross, when Christ becomes the living way, He calls us, He says, and put your faith in Me. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. Because I can get you there. I will get you there. Give your life to Me. Trust in Me as the one who has borne your burden, paid your penalty, and will be your Savior. And I'll come into your life and make all things new, and I will get you there. Colin Smith says it this way at the end of your outline there. Christ's death changes death for all his people. Christ's death changes death for everyone who is in Christ. When you die, you will not carry your sin and your guilt into death. Because he carried it into his death for you. If you are in Christ, you will never know what it is like to die a sin-bearing death. And therefore, death will hold no fear for you. God has gone from being your judge to being your father. And you've gone from the the bar of justice to going home. I do a lot of funerals. And I love to do a Christian funeral. The hope that we have. The promises that are here. Death has become a door. Death has become the way into the holy place. That he has prepared for us before the foundations of the world. As one Christian said, I have no fear of going home. God's finger is on the latch. I'm ready for him to open the door. Are you ready for him to open the door? Is heaven your true home? Has Christ become precious to your soul? Because he is the way and the truth and the life. And we come to the Father through the Son. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words of promise and comfort. We do not net need to let our hearts be troubled, but that we can believe in the Father and in the Son. We do believe in you, Lord Jesus. We do believe that there is a heaven. We long to be there with you. Lord Jesus, would you come and open our hearts and open our eyes that we might see the nature of reality, to see the world and the universe as you see it. There is a God in heaven with whom we have to do. Would you prepare us heart and mind and soul for the day that we will stand before you, that it may be a day of joy, a day of reconciliation, a day of homecoming. Help us to put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, in whose name we ask and pray. Amen.